2: Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
1: To your health, dear brother. And to your victory in the coming election, John. Yes, if I'm not sunk by these infernal servant murders. Is it as dire as all that? The Marshal and Sergeant Chenovil have no other leads? Cheneville is a dog, Lee is lost at sea, and the less said about those imbeciles from Houston the better. Yeah, well, you've done what you can. You're not the police, and that's not your responsibility. But the people don't feel safe. The election is only a few weeks away. What can possibly be done? We could have a trial. Try whom? There are no suspects. That's not true, James. There's the, um, the lover of the first girl that was killed, Spencer. He was cleared. There was no malevolence in his manner, and he was also gravely injured. But we can't be certain of his innocence, can we? He was certainly there. Don't we owe it to the public and to the poor girl to examine the possibility of his guilt with the utmost scrutiny? You can't mean to convict him. If he's innocent, he will go free and no harm will be done. If he's guilty, then justice will be served. And by having me try him, you'll gain the appearance of progress. You're the district attorney, dear brother, and I'm just the mayor. For a little while longer, at least. I leave such decisions to your excellent and capable hands. But consider the public good. And yours, of course. (sighs) Very well,
2: John. I can have the papers drawn up in the morning. There's a good lad. What you just heard was a hypothetical conversation between the mayor of Austin, Texas, John Robertson, and his brother, James, in late November, 1885.
3: It had been almost a full year since the start of the Servant Girl
2: Annihilator murders. Six victims up to this point. All black, mostly women.
3: All servants employed by the white upper class of Austin society.
2: So far, the only serious suspects were black men, either lovers of the murdered women or known thieves. Not one would confess to any of the crimes.
3: And with very little physical evidence, the investigation was at a standstill.
2: Desperate for answers, Mayor Robertson had retained the services of the Noble Detective Agency out of Houston with taxpayer funds. But
3: the Noble detectives were caught fabricating testimony against suspects and produced no
2: solid leads. They left Austin in disgrace. The mayor's political support was sagging at the polls, putting him in a tight race with his opponent, Joseph Nall, a local businessman.
3: And so, the timing of the indictment of Walter Spencer, the boyfriend of the first victim, Molly Smith, two weeks before the city election on December 8th, is a little, well, suspect.
2: This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
3: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our final episode on The Servant Girl Annihilator.
2: If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday.
3: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. And now, back to the indictment of Walter Spencer.
2: Walter had been bludgeoned with the same axe used to murder Molly, and he had risked his own life seeking help to find Molly after the attack. The police had cleared him of any wrongdoing.
3: But after a year right before the election, the district attorney, who just happens to be the mayor's brother, just also happens to change his mind about Walter's guilt. I call baloney.
2: Oh, careful, Wendy. There's no paper trail explaining James Robertson's decision to indict Walter Spencer. The D.A. could have simply changed his mind. Fried baloney. Either way, Mayor Robertson was able to claim that justice was being served in the last weeks leading up to the election, which he ended up winning.
3: By 52 votes, baloney.
2: One week later, Walter Spencer's trial was held. District Attorney Robertson posited that Walter and Molly had fought and that she had hit him with the axe, or that he had hit himself after committing the murder it was
3: soon apparent that no new evidence was being presented and the DA rested his case only after a single day
2: walter's court-appointed lawyer informed the jury that walter was still suffering headaches from his injury and had been living with his mother since the attack
3: fortunately the jury did not give in to the prejudice of the time and walter was quickly acquitted
2: both the district attorney and the mayor said nothing the robertsons planned to move on to the next step and unbeknownst to them, so did the servant girl
3: annihilator.
1: The children were nestled all snug in their beds, while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads.
4: Stay vigilant, Sergeant. It's only my second night on the job, and I'd prefer that it stay quiet.
1: Of course, sir. So do we all.
4: Has it really been so terrible?
1: It has. These women were butchered like stock animals.
4: Perhaps it's over.
1: What in the blazes? A woman has been chopped to pieces! (laughs) It's Mrs. Hancock! On Water Street!
3: It was December 24th, 1885. Christmas Eve. Families were celebrating the holiday.
2: At the same time... Vigilant policemen from the Austin Police Department were on patrol for any suspicious activity.
3: This included the department's lead investigator, Sergeant John Cheneville, as well as his newly appointed superior, Marshal James Lucy.
2: Lucy was a former Texas Ranger known for arresting bandits and was seen as a strong successor to Grooms Lee, whose term had just expired.
3: Lee was seen as a liability to the department due to the lack of progress in the servant girl annihilator investigation. And Mayor Robertson and the Austin City Aldermen were glad to see him go.
2: And it was Marshal Lucy, the new head of the department, and Sergeant Cheneville who were approached by the rider announcing that the annihilator had just struck again.
3: But this time the victim was no servant girl. Moses. Moses Hancock.
1: My dear Susan... She's still alive, barely. Just like the others. Axe wounds to the head. Her brain is oozing from her skull. Eyes rolled back, but she's breathing. She's bleeding from her ear. Looks like it was punctured. Just like the Raimi girl. Step aside, please.
3: Step aside. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Is there anything to be done for her, Doctor? No.
3: Susan Hancock was the 43-year-old wife of Moses, a prosperous carpenter in town and mother to two
2: daughters. Moses Hancock claimed that his family had returned home after a Christmas party and went to bed. A little over an hour later, just after midnight, he was stirred awake by a noise.
3: Checking his wife's room, Moses found it had been ransacked.
2: Sheets and pillows pulled from the bed, chests and drawers emptied and their contents scattered on the floor.
3: And the window overlooking the backyard was ajar, a splash of blood on the windowsill.
1: Susan, where are you?
3: No, no!
2: Moses found Susan lying in the backyard in a pool of her own blood.
3: Who's
1: there? Stop! Stop, you fiend!
2: Unfortunately, Moses
3: was unable to get a good look at this fleeing figure before they disappeared
2: but a neighbor heard the commotion and came over to help.
3: They carried Susan into the living room of the Hancock home, leaving Moses to care for her while the neighbor ran for the police.
2: Soon, Sergeant Cheneville, the police department's lead investigator, had arrived along with men from the surrounding neighborhood.
3: They found a bloodied ax in the yard just below the Hancock's bedroom window. Moses identified it as his, saying that he kept it with a wood pile.
2: Tenneville's bloodhounds searched the yard and the alley through which the attacker had fled, but they found nothing.
3: And that's when another rider came up to the house. It's
0: Eula
2: Phillips! Her head's been chopped in two! There had been another murder. That's two in less than an hour. Horrified, the men raced over to the Phillips home on Hickory Street.
3: Eula Phillips was the 17-year-old
2: wife of Jimmy Phillips, the son of a prominent Austin architect. She was regarded as one of Austin's most beautiful young women, with auburn hair, delicate features, and a Mona Lisa smile.
3: They found her body in the backyard of the house, struck perfectly above the nose with an axe blade. Her forehead was split wide open.
2: Her husband, Jimmy, was found in the bedroom he shared with Eula and their 10-month-old baby.
3: There was a large gash above his ear, and a bloody axe at the foot of the bed.
2: Jimmy was alive, but he was reeling from his wound, unable to tell police anything.
3: Cheneville's dogs again searched the yard and yet again failed to pick up a scent.
2: And so the servant girl annihilator had struck again, twice on the same night. Two women
3: murdered within an hour of each other on Christmas Eve.
2: But now it was white women being targeted, not servants. Why the change? Was the killer choosing his victims at random? Or the servant girl murders practice?
3: Taking down more vulnerable prey before taking his revenge on the rich in their large houses?
2: Who's to say? But one thing was for certain.
3: There was panic in the streets and in the papers.
1: Blood! 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 The demons have transferred their thirst for blood to white
3: people. The people of Austin demanded action.
0: We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit AnytimeFitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
3: And now, back to Unsolved Murders.
1: I have called this assembly to determine measures to bring these men to justice. Sentinels should be posted around the city limits. Suspend the statutes. We'll make the killers
3: hang. I will have order. Mayor Robertson and the Austin City Aldermen soon authorized the police department to hire 20 additional officers.
2: Additionally, Mayor Robertson was once again authorized to hire private detectives to work on the case.
3: Oh, because that worked out so well the last time.
2: Well, Robertson had previously hired the noble detective agency out of Houston, whose detectives fabricated false statements to incriminate suspects.
3: But this time, Robertson said it would be different. This time, I will not be hiring
1: amateurs. I will march straight into the Western Union and send a telegram to the Pinkerton
2: Agency in Chicago. The greatest detectives in all of America. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency was established by Alan Pinkerton in 1850, and at the time was probably the most famous private detective agency in the world.
3: Pinkerton agents had served as Abraham Lincoln's personal security during the Civil War.
2: On well, the Pinkertons would indeed be a significant step up from the noble detectives previously employed by Robertson.
3: But as it turned out, Robertson didn't hire the right Pinkertons.
1: Thank you for the cigars, Mayor. It's no trouble at all. I can't tell you how glad the entire city of Austin is that you're here, boys. It's our duty. It must be terribly exciting working for Alan Pinkerton. <clears throat> pardon me, sir, but we don't work for Alan Pinkerton. Uh, beg pardon? We work for Matt. Pinkerton. And just who in the devil is Matt Pinkerton?
2: Matt Pinkerton was the owner of Pinkerton and Company, United States detective agency, and was not related in any way to Alan Pinkerton. Technically, he did
3: briefly work for the real Pinkerton agency as a night watchman, but he was quickly fired.
2: Matt Pinkerton used his name to prominently advertise his agency, but the actual Pinkerton circulated notices around Chicago that Matt was nothing more than a con man.
3: Evidently, Mayor Robertson had addressed his telegram vaguely to the Pinkerton Agency, and it was delivered to Matt Pinkerton's agency by mistake.
2: Robertson, embarrassed by this and unwilling to subject himself to another scandal, said nothing publicly about this error. Unbelievable. Just as with the noble detectives in September of 1885, the fake Pinkertons went around Austin, and it quickly became apparent that they lacked the ability to solve the case.
3: The Citizens' Committee of Safety, formed after the Christmas murders, proposed to offer rewards for information that would lead to the arrests of the killers.
2: It was, at the time, one of the largest such rewards in Texas history. $1,000 each for the cases of Eula Phillips and Susan Hancock.
3: And $1,000 total for the cases of the five murdered black servant women.
2: Molly Smith.
3: Eliza Shelley.
2: Irene Cross.
3: Little Mary Ramey, 11 years old
2: and Gracie Vance, as well as her lover, Orange Washington.
3: Not to mention the other strange late-night assaults where the victims lived.
2: The gambit worked, and tips began to roll in. But at first, they didn't seem to lead anywhere. That was until Thomas Bales, A local Austin man who worked for a small local detective agency showed up at City Hall and claimed that the last victim, Eula Phillips, had been living a double life.
3: Eula was uniformly described as beautiful
2: and her marriage to Jimmy Phillips had been quickly arranged after
3: she became pregnant.
2: The Phillips family was prosperous and Eula found herself living a life of privilege.
3: But there were hidden costs. Jimmy was a drinker. Publicly, Eula was the good wife, but according to Thomas Bales, she began to act out privately.
2: Bales told police that Eula had been sneaking over to a boarding house in a neglected part of downtown Austin.
3: This boarding house was run by an elderly woman named Mae Tobin, nicknamed the Body Housekeeper.
2: Tobin had this nickname because her boarding house wasn't really a boarding house at all.
3: It was what was called in those days a house of assignation.
2: A place for wealthy Austin men to have affairs with women, renting rooms for up to an hour at a time. A love hotel. <laughs> Bales claimed that he had met with Mae Tobin and that she had told him that Eula was a regular. She had come by on the night of her murder and been turned away because the house was full. An hour later, she was dead. Tobin was called for at once to confirm Bale's story, which she did, in exchange for being allowed to continue running her business.
3: Tobin claimed that Eula had three lovers that she met at the house several times, sometimes in the afternoons and sometimes at night. None of the men ever gave their names.
2: Bales proposed that Eula had snuck out on Christmas Eve after Jimmy came home drunk, but he was alert and awake by the time she returned. Bales then
3: claimed that Jimmy, having discovered his wife sneaking out on him, waited for Eula to fall asleep before taking his axe from the woodpile and hacking her to death.
2: After mimicking the earlier servant girl murder scenes, Jimmy then returned to the bedroom and hit himself with the blunt end of the axe to deflect suspicion. (gasps) That sounds a little
3: contrived.
2: The investigators thought so too, at first. Perhaps Bales and Tobin made up the story to receive the reward money.
3: But if the murder of Eula Phillips was really a simple domestic killing, then that meant that the servant girl annihilator hadn't moved on from killing servants after all.
2: It wasn't long before an arrest warrant was issued for Jimmy Phillips, and gossip of Eula's indiscretion spread through the city.
3: But if Eula was killed by her husband, and the servant girls were still presumed to be killed by unsavory black men, then who killed Susan Hancock?
2: Well, a couple weeks after Jimmy's arrest... Bales came forward again.
3: This time with a story from Susan Hancock's sister, Mary Falwell.
2: Mary claimed that Susan had become unnerved by her husband Moses, having an increased fondness for alcohol.
3: She claimed that Susan had prepared to move herself and her two daughters to live in Waco, where Falwell lived.
2: As proof, Mary showed a letter found while cleaning the Hancock home, apparently written in the month or so before Susan's murder.
1: Dear husband, I have lived with you 18 years and have always tried to
3: make a good wife and help you all I could. I have loved you and followed you day and night, but you won't quit whiskey. And I am so nervous I can't stand it. It almost kills me for you to drink, and our eldest daughter is almost crazy and will lose her mind.
1: If I was to do anything to disgrace you and our children, you would have quit me long ago.
3: Take good care of yourself. Write to me at Waco, and I will answer every letter. Your wife until death,
4: Sue Hancock.
3: Bales claimed that Moses
2: Hancock must have found the letter and killed his wife before she had a chance to leave
3: with the girls.
2: The coincidence of having two husbands decide to murder their wives on the same night and make both crimes appear to be the work of the servant girl annihilator seemed incredible even preposterous. But authorities deemed it equally unlikely that a complete stranger would dismember one white woman before racing across town to dismember another in the span of an hour.
3: Despite the series of random attacks over the past
2: year. Perhaps with so little progress being made in the case, it's understandable that Austin would want to believe in the easy answer that these latest murders were crimes of passion and not random violence.
3: Both husbands of the murdered white women, Jimmy Phillips and Moses Hancock, were tried for the murders of their wives.
2: In late February, 1886, Jimmy Phillips was brought before the court, where District Attorney James Robertson, the mayor's brother, laid out the case against him.
3: Just as he had done to Walter Spencer a few months prior.
2: The DA argued that no one had been able to suggest the name of any other man who would have wanted Eula dead.
3: The start date of Jimmy's trial was set for May.
2: But only a couple days later, another suspect was brought to light.
3: By the mayor's fake Pinkerton detectives, no less.
2: They received a telegram from a so-called prominent citizen that one of the men Eula Phillips had met at the House of Assignation was a distinguished politician.
3: A prominent state officer and an active candidate for the governorship of Texas. Uh-oh.
2: Yeah, the only man who fits such a description was William J. Swain, the state's comptroller in charge of revenues and taxes.
3: Swain had just been re-elected to his office by an overwhelming majority in November. And up to this point, he was considered a shoe in for the next governor of Texas.
2: But that future was up in the air now that the telegraph produced by the Pinkertons suggested that he might be involved in Eula's murder. I've never met Eula Phillips, and I know nothing about the circumstances of her demise, save what has been in the papers. But I tell
3: you this, I will find the party that has spread such underhanded slander against myself, and they will be held accountable in a court of law. It was soon revealed that the prominent citizen who has sent the telegram was likely Sol Ross, a political rival of Swain's who had just
2: announced that he would also be running for governor. Rumors began to swirl around Swain's life, and despite his steadfast denials, his political future appeared to be in jeopardy.
3: Embarrassed by this new scandal, the fake Pinkertons had dredged up. Mayor Robertson dismissed them in early March, and they returned to Chicago.
2: Jimmy Phillips' trial began first, on May 24, 1886.
3: The courtroom was described as crowded to suffocation.
2: The district attorney laid out a melodramatic tale about an unfaithful wife and a jealous husband prone to drink.
3: George McCutcheon, a Georgetown farmer with whom Phillips had stayed to try to keep Jimmy out of the saloons, testified about an exchange he had had with Jimmy right before the young couple returned to Austin.
0: You need to stop drinking, Jimmy. You're ruining yourself, and you're making your wife miserable.
4: It's just, I worry that Eula carries on with other men. Do you think she's too fast?
0: No, of course not. I think she's a good and virtuous woman, but she talks too much.
4: If I thought she was not virtuous,
2: I would kill her and then kill myself. Jimmy's sister, Adelia, testified that she knew that Eula had met at least two men at May Tobin's. She
3: added that she was unsure of Eula's activities on Christmas Eve, but confirmed that Eula was
2: untrue to her husband. The star witness, though, was May Tobin herself. The
3: newspapers described her as the Scarlet Woman. And had Mrs. Phillips been to your house?
4: Yes, many times. Eula would come over to meet men.
1: What sort of men? Young men.
4: Young men. Other men? One was John Dickinson, the secretary of the Construction Commission.
2: Unlike her initial report to the police, now Mae Tobin was naming names.
3: She also named Benjamin Baker, the head of Texas's public school system, and
2: William Shelley, a clerk at the comptroller's office. But spectators were now wondering if Tobin would name the comptroller himself William Swain.
3: But Tobin did not. All that she said was that there were two other men that Eula arrived with whose names she did not know.
1: What about on Christmas Eve? Did you see who accompanied Mrs. Phillips then?
4: I did not. I couldn't even tell you if Eula was riding with a man in her carriage on Christmas Eve. An hour later, she was dead.
2: Later, after the prosecution had rested, the defense argued that Jimmy would not have been able to self-inflict such a severe blow to the back of his head.
3: They also demonstrated that Jimmy's footprint was clearly smaller than the bloody footprint that had been cut and preserved from the Phillips' hallway, which was the only major physical evidence from the crime scene.
2: Ultimately, it was not enough. After a day and a half of deliberation, Jimmy Phillips was found guilty of second-degree axoricide. The murder of one's wife. And sentenced to seven years in the state penitentiary.
3: But rather than relief, the guilty verdict only raised concerns throughout Austin.
2: Many believed that the evidence presented just didn't warrant the verdict, and newspapers reported that a majority of Austin citizens believed that the jury had erred.
3: People still wanted to know who might have been with Eula
2: on Christmas Eve. William Swain himself did not comment on the conviction, but he still found himself dogged by rumors of his involvement with Eula.
3: Swain lost the Democratic nomination for governor to his rival, Sol Ross, who would go on and win the governorship in the general election.
2: Swain never ran for public office again.
3: The conviction against Jimmy Phillips wasn't long-lived.
2: On November 10, 1886, the Texas Court of Appeals found that prosecutors had not presented proof of Jimmy's knowledge of Eula's infidelity, nor had they presented evidence tying him to her murder.
3: The verdict was reversed, and Jimmy was brought back to the county jail to await a new trial.
2: But there was no new trial. By March 1887, D.A. Robertson filed to have the case dismissed due to a lack of new evidence.
3: However, Robertson wasn't done. The trial of Moses Hancock, husband of Susan Hancock, the other Christmas murder victim, began in June of 1886.
2: The prosecutors argued that Moses' story had changed from what he had told police on Christmas Eve, based on the testimony of a couple of his neighbors.
3: Another witness claimed that he had gone with Moses on a camping trip. The witness claimed that Moses had threatened Thomas Bales, the private detective, for having him arrested.
2: But the defense had the eldest Hancock daughter, Lena, testify on her father's behalf.
3: Lena admitted that her mother was not fond of her father's drinking, but that he had never
4: abused them. And Mama never showed Papa that letter she wrote telling him we were going to leave. She hid it in the bottom of a flower box where Aunt Mary found it. He didn't have a reason to hurt Mama.
2: At the end of the trial, the defense presented Travis County Sheriff Malcolm Hornsby to testify about a new suspect.
3: On February 9, 1886, about one month after the Christmas Eve killings, Sheriff's Deputy William Bracken was called to a saloon in Mason Town, a community just outside the Austin city limits.
2: Deputy Bracken was told that a young black man named Nathan Elgin had gotten into an argument with a woman and dragged her to a nearby house.
3: Bracken arrived at the house and attempted to arrest Elgin, but Elgin turned and attacked Bracken by striking him on the head.
2: Bracken pulled out his pistol and shot Elgin in the chest, killing him. When I arrived on the scene, I noticed Elgin's right foot was missing the little toe. Then I remembered that one of the footprints from the Phillips murder looked like it had a little toe missing. I had a cast made of Elgin's foot and later compared it with the Phillips print. In my opinion, The footprints match. Hornsby also testified that the footprints found near the fourth murder victim, Mary Ramey, also indicated a missing Little right toe.
3: The sheriff was suggesting that Nathan Elgin was involved in at least two of the murders and could be the servant girl annihilator.
2: The newspapers dismissed this insinuation, saying that other experts did not agree with the sheriff's assessment.
1: The rumors relative to Elgin and the crimes are false in every particular.
3: Yet, after three days of deliberation, the jury could not agree and the judge declared a mistrial. Moses Hancock and Jimmy Phillips were both free.
2: But that meant that the Annihilator could still be out there. Despite disrupting a gubernatorial election, and despite the almost three years that had passed since the killing started, the terror was far
3: from over.
2: Our story will continue in a moment after the break.
3: And now, back to our story.
2: There were other attacks before and after the trials of Jimmy Phillips and Moses Hancock.
3: Another axe murder was committed on January 31, 1886, just a month after the Phillips and Hancock murders in San Antonio, 100 miles south of Austin.
2: Patty Scott, a 28-year-old servant woman, was chopped in the head three times with an axe. Later, in July, 1887, after the acquittal of Moses Hancock, there was another attack, this time in Gainesville, about 250 miles north of Austin. Jeannie Watkins
3: and Mamie Bostwick were both teenage daughters of wealthy cattlemen.
1: Mamie? Jeanie, what's going on?
3: Girls, it's the middle of the night. Stop that ruckus girls? Oh my god! Mamie.
2: <laughs> Both girls had been struck in the head with an axe.
3: Mamie Bostwick was hit three times, her upper lip almost completely severed.
2: Jeannie Watkins was struck over her right eye, dislodging her eye from its socket. She died nearly 24 hours later.
3: Mamie survived her wounds, but she never remembered anything about the attack.
2: Both the San Antonio and Gainesville killings prompted speculation in the newspapers that they were the work of the servant girl annihilator.
3: A reporter from the New York Times compared Patty Scott's wounds with those of the Austin victims.
4: There was the same deadly cut across the base of her skull that three of the Austin victims bore, and the blow on the crown of her head was identical with that in the Austin tragedies. It is the general belief that the deed was done by the Austin murderer.
2: The Daily Statesman and the New York World did similar comparisons with the Gainesville attacks. Mrs. Bostwick and Watkins were both struck in nearly the same anatomical region, the right eye, as the
1: women and girls who were assassinated in Austin.
4: The time of night, the time of the moon, the similarity of the wounds, and the impenetrable mystery which overshadowed each of the crimes all point to the same bloody hand in the awful work.
3: But for both the San Antonio and the Gainesville attacks, the public hysteria was mostly kept away from Austin, which was focused on the Phillips and Hancock trials.
2: And both the San Antonio and Gainesville crimes have obvious suspects. In San Antonio was Patty Scott's husband, William.
3: William was known to be violent with Patty, even threatening to cut her throat with a razor.
2: But San Antonio police were unable to find any blood on William after the murder and his alibi of staying at a local hotel was unshakable. He was never arrested. And roughly a year after the Gainesville attack, a man named W.L.
3: Beeson was apprehended for the crime.
2: Beeson had been on the run for cashing a forged check. The police officer in pursuit learned from Beeson's sister-in-law that he had confessed to killing Jeannie Watkins while attempting to rob the house.
3: But when the police finally caught up to Beeson, he jumped from a train and suffered a severe head injury.
2: He was taken into custody and died in jail without ever regaining consciousness.
3: Was Beeson's confession to his sister-in-law genuine?
2: Or was it a ploy by a man on the run to boost his infamy?
3: Because of the circumstances of his death, the answer probably died with him. Back in Austin, after the mistrial in the Hancock case, Mayor John Robertson was preparing for his 1887 re-election campaign.
2: But his political days were numbered. Finally, some good news. Robertson's botching of the Pinkerton hiring came to light after relatives of Eula Phillips and Susan Hancock contacted the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, asking their opinion on who had slain the women.
3: The real Pinkertons responded to the families with a letter that was later published in the newspapers. It said that no one from their agency had ever been sent to Austin.
2: Residents were justifiably furious after learning that Robertson had paid out over $3,000 in city funds to the fake Pinkertons.
3: Nothing like a cover-up to avoid a little embarrassment.
2: Robertson announced that he would no longer be running for re-election in December.
3: The mayor's longtime rival, Joseph Nall, won the election in a landslide.
2: After the election, there were no more axe murders in Texas. But
3: across the Atlantic Ocean, a new string of horrifically violent murders was just beginning. I'm down on whores, and
1: I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work, the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. I love my work. I want to start again.
3: This was, of course, Jack the Ripper.
2: Perhaps the most infamous serial killer of all time, the Ripper targeted prostitutes in the Whitechapel District of London, viciously mutilating their bodies.
3: Beginning at the end of August 1888, the Ripper claimed at least five known victims.
2: Like in Austin, the police were baffled.
3: There were other parallels to the annihilator killings. Jack the Ripper's third and fourth victims, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, were found murdered less than an hour apart.
2: The Daily Statesman in Austin began to suggest a connection between the two sprees, even that the Ripper and the Annihilator were one and the same man. Other newspapers followed suit. There were, however, significant differences. The Annihilator murders involved a variety of weapons, axes, knives, metal rods, and bricks.
3: The Ripper used
2: only a knife. And none of the organs of the Texas women had been removed, unlike the Ripper murders.
3: While there's a certain intrigue to possibly linking the Annihilator murders to the most infamous serial killer of all time, the evidence is extremely flimsy. The
2: authorities quickly dismissed any potential connection, and so should any serious investigation into the Servant Girl Annihilator.
4: The fact that he is no longer at work in Texas argues his presence somewhere else. His peculiar line of work was executed precisely in the same manner as is now going on in London. Why should he not be there?
2: Back in Austin, it was 1889. Almost three years had passed since the last Annihilator murders.
3: But the silence did not mean that the citizens were calm.
2: Many residents still did not believe in a single killer, clinging to the original theory that it was a gang of uneducated black hoodlums that had committed the murders. Austin was still looking for a way to keep its people safe. As the city modernized, Alexander P. Woolridge, the president of the City National Bank, proposed the construction of a 60-foot-tall dam on the Colorado River to produce cheap electricity.
3: This would allow Austin to install a citywide lighting system that could keep the streets safe.
2: These were not normal streetlights.
3: No. Austin chose instead to purchase powerful arc lamps to illuminate the streets.
2: Each lamp would top a 165-foot-tall iron tower.
3: Austin purchased the arc lamps from the city of Detroit, where officials found them expensive to maintain compared to the average electric streetlight.
2: Arc lights were going out of fashion in the rest of the country.
3: But in Austin, they were desperate for
2: illumination. It took three years to build the dam and another two to build a lighting system. But on May 5th, 1895, the city of Austin turned on the lights.
4: There was a sudden blinding flash, and the town was a blaze of white light that hid the rays of the moonlight with its brilliancy. In every nook and corner, the brilliant lights sent their shooting rays and the whole face of creation was transcendent.
2: Now that's a positive review. The new lighting system earned Austin a new nickname, the city of eternal moonlight.
3: The residents of Austin felt safer than they had in a long time.
2: The axe killings had stopped by this point, but the horrific legacy of the servant girl annihilator had a lasting impact.
3: Unfortunately, the pervasive belief that it was quote-unquote bad blacks who committed the terrible murders gave prejudice deep roots
2: in Austin. Jim Crow policies came early to Austin, just after the turn of the 20th century.
3: The city's aldermen passed an ordinance requiring African-Americans and whites to be separated while riding streetcars.
2: Proposals were also made to relocate all black residents to East Austin. If all the black people are in one place, it was thought, the police would have less trouble keeping tabs on the worst characters.
3: Worse, the city's black leaders were ignored by the establishment.
2: After Albert Carrington, the city's first black alderman, lost his seat in 1885, Another black person was not elected to the city council until 1971.
3: That's 86 years of discrimination.
2: So far as we know, the Annihilator was never caught.
3: We don't even know for sure if there was an Annihilator, or if it was more than one man
2: but the similarity of the crimes and their viciousness and the relatively short span of a year in which the main seven attacks took place.
3: And the fact that the murders appear to have stopped shortly thereafter lead us to conclude that it was likely the work of
2: one killer. Due to the primitive forensic science of the time, there is little clear evidence indicating a suspect.
3: But Nathan Elgin, the man that Sheriff Hornsby testified about in the trial of Moses Hancock, is the one person who appears to be linked by evidence to more than one crime.
2: Elgin's footprints appears to match bloody footprints found at the home of Jimmy and Eula Phillips, one of the Christmas Eve victims.
3: Linked by a missing toe on Elgin's right foot.
2: Elgin's footprint also appeared to match the description of a footprint behind the house where Mary Ramey was murdered.
3: Similar footprints were also found near the body of Eliza Shelley, the second victim, although this wasn't mentioned by Hornsby.
2: Elgin also had a history of violence around Austin, where he grew up, and was in fact killed while attacking a woman.
3: And there's the fact that he was killed about a month after the Hancock and Phillips murders, and there were no
2: later axe killings in Austin. But if Elgin was the servant girl annihilator, why did he attack servant women? Did he view them as easy targets?
3: And why were the final two victims rich white women? Were these two killings racially motivated?
2: Was Elgin just getting started when he was killed?
3: The evidence is unclear and unconvincing by today's standards. But of the available annihilator suspects... Nathan Elgin ticks the most boxes.
2: What is clear is that the Servant Girl Annihilator's killing spree from November 1884 to December 1885 stirred a panic in the city of Austin, Texas.
3: The killings deepened racial tensions, furthered political corruption, and still haunts Austin to this day.
2: Sometimes there are no clear answers.
3: Only scars.
2: Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll investigate Rita Bouchard.
3: Thanks for listening.
2: We'll see you next time.
3: If we live till next time.
2: Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Unsolved Murders is written by Lauren Cannon, and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, Nick Masue, Kinna McEnroe, Manu Narayan, Steve Pinto, and Greg Polson.